This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today I want to talk to you about happiness, and I want to tell you about a really happy time in my life. Uh, I got this great job in Washington, D.C., and the job came with a 40% raise over my current salary. So I was like really st stoked. And I get to the university and I just really love it. And we find this great parish, my family and I do. And the parish is like the best parish I've ever been in. There's great singing, there's great preaching, like A plus. It's a beautiful church physically. But the best thing of all was all the people at that parish. They were like totally amazing people inspiring, fun. They were just absolutely terrific. So you think, well, this is great. Everything's going great for you. But there was one big problem. Uh, my wife hated Washington, D.C. And so I thought to myself, well, God, I've got to do something about this. And so I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend like it's Lent. And I'm going to offer up all these Lenten sacrifices and pray that God somehow changes her mind so that she loves D.C. And she finds great friends there. And I'm just going to pray that everything changes. And so I started to pray. And so I'm praying for, you know, a month or two, maybe even three. It was a long time and nothing changed at all. Right. My wife totally hated it. And so I went back to her and I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to help out God a little bit. And so I went back to my wife and I said, honey, just to let you know, I've been praying a lot that you're going to love D.C. That you're going to find great friends here. That's going to be amazing for you. And, uh, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm really praying for you. And she said, well, that's very interesting. She said, well, have you asked God what God wants? And I thought, uh, well, no, I haven't done that. Um, and then I thought to myself, I don't want to ask God what God wants. Because what if God says to me, you need to go back to Los Angeles? I, I don't want that answer. And so I didn't pray about it. You know, a week or two went by. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, God does know everything and God does love me. And maybe I should just check in with God just to, you know, kind of consult a little bit and maybe see if there's any input from God on this matter. So finally, I got the courage to pray about it. And I prayed. And basically, I knew pretty much right away that I needed to go back to Los Angeles. So that's what we did. Packed everything up in Washington, D.C., went back to Los Angeles, took up my old position in Los Angeles. Now, I'd like to tell you that when I got back to Los Angeles, I had a big smile on my face, that I was delighted. But that would be a lie. <laughs> I wasn't delighted at all. I was unbelievably sad. I was depressed. I was unhappy. I missed the big 40% salary raise. I missed the parish. I missed all the people that I was working with, and especially I missed my dear friends that I had made in the parish. So I was definitely not a happy camper at all. Extremely unhappy. So I did what any good scholar would do. I sat down at the computer and Googled, how can I become happier? And I hit, you know, search. <laughs> and what came up? What popped up? Well, what popped up was this whole field of psychology that I literally never heard of. And the field of psychology was called positive psychology. And it was a new field founded in about the year 2000 by a guy named Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania. And what positive psychology did was it looked at various alleged ways to become happier and tested them the way they test medications. 
So if you know anything about how they test medications, what they do is double-blind study. So if you guys were, were testing some medication, half of you would receive a placebo, and then half of you would receive the actual medication. And then they'd you know, follow up empirically and try to figure out, well, did this medicine have any effect? And so that's basically what the positive psychologists did, is they studied all these interventions that allegedly would boost happiness. And you might say, well, if they're going to study that, how are they going to determine what counts as happiness, right? Because different people might define happiness in different ways. And that's, very, that's a good point. So let me just propose to you, not that you have to accept it, but let me propose to you one definition of happiness. And it's the one given by Martin Seligman. And his definition of happiness has five elements to it. So first is positive emotion. Part of happiness, according to Seligman, is feeling kind of up, having positive affect, you know, being cheerful, having that kind of positive emotion, right? A second part for him, though, is engagement. So for him, happiness is not just having a big smile on your face all day long, but part of happiness, too, is being engaged. Sometimes positive psychologists speak of this as flow. So what is flow? You, I'm sure, have experienced this before. Maybe you've done some activity, and when you're doing the activity, time seems to stop, right? You're maybe uh, doing jujitsu, right? And in an hour and a half goes by, and it's like, well, that felt like 10 minutes, right? Or you're doing a video game, right? And again, you know, two hours go by, and you're just like, wow, that just flew by. So that's this feeling of flow, and different people get flow from different kinds of activities, right? Some people get it from golf, some people get it from basketball, some people get it from just talking with a friend, but you can get it in lots of different ways. But the basic idea is you're totally engaged. So the activity has to be something that's a, a happy medium between something that's too easy, which might lead to kind of boredom, but on the other extreme, you don't want to also avoid something that's too hard and challenging, because that leads to frustration. So it's kind of right between, right? It's not so easy that it's boring, but it's not so hard that it's frustrating either. It's right in between. So that's flow or engagement. And Seligman thinks that's part of happiness. A third element of happiness for Seligman is meaning. And what is meaning? He defines it as making a contribution to something greater than yourself. And meaning is different than positive emotion. In fact, he talks about figures in history like Abraham Lincoln and like Winston Churchill who both struggled with depression. So you might say they were low in terms of positive emotion, but they were very high in terms of meaning. Why? Well, Lincoln is, you know, ending slavery, fighting the Civil War. Churchill's fighting against the Nazis, saving Europe. So in terms of making contribution to something bigger than they are, I would say Winston Churchill and Lincoln did it, obviously an amazing job. But to find meaning, it doesn't require that you're the next Lincoln or the next Churchill, right? Anyone really can find meaning simply through serving other people, making other people's lives in some way better. So it doesn't have to be, you know, again, storming the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. It can be something really easy and simple, like, say, cleaning up the dishes after your roommates or something, right? Something everyday, normal, not spectacular and exciting, nothing in the newspapers. But that's meaning, making a contribution to other people to make their lives better in some way. The next uh, element of happiness for uh, Seligman is relationships. And this is really the heart of happiness for Seligman, having good relationships with people. And by relationships, I don't necessarily mean romantic relationships. It could be that. But I'm thinking about friendships. 
I'm thinking about loving relationships with people in your family. That is really the heart of happiness in Seligman's view. And in fact, they did a big study at Harvard University about this. They studied people from their undergraduate years, you know, 18, 19, 20, and they studied them every single year. They checked in with them all the way through their lives until the last people participating in the study died, you know, at 80, 90 years old. So they studied these people their whole lives. And what did they find out? Well, the lead researcher of the study, the, the last lead researcher, because the first ones died before the study was completed, but the last lead, re lead researcher said that they were, he was asked one time, well, what did you find in all this research, right? You studied all these people for decades and decades and decades. What made their life good and successful? And the lead researcher said, well, what we found is this, happiness is love, full stop. Happiness is love, full stop. What they found was that those people who had loving relationships, right? They love their husband, their wife. They love their kids. Uh, if they weren't married, they love their parents. They love their friends. They had strong relationships with other people. Those people had very rich, rewarding, and good lives. But the people who did not have that, the people that maybe made lots of money and were in charge of a big company, but were lacking love, didn't really have good friends, didn't really get along with their family, didn't really get along with anybody. Well, those people ended up not only reporting very low levels of happiness, but those people actually on average ended up dying well before the people that had good relationships. So relationships, according to Seligman, are really the heart of happiness. The final part of happiness for Seligman is achievement. And achievement is, you've experienced this I'm sure before, where you have a kind of to-do list for the day, right? And I'm sure you've had this experience, I hope, where you go through your to-do list and you check this off and you check this off and check this off. And, check. and if you get to the end of it and you checked off all 10 things or whatever, however many you have, don't you feel good? Don't you feel like, yeah, nailed it, right? And your to-do list could be um, things that make other people's lives better. So you could combine the achievement with the meaning, right? But the basic idea is achievement is part of human happiness, at least according to Seligman, right? And he distinguished two different kinds of achievement. He achieved achievement of what the philosopher Oster McIntyre might call external goods. So the achievement versus the achievement of internal goods. So let me draw that distinction. The idea of achievement of internal goods is we're playing chess. And I achieve the internal good of chess if I'm excellent at that game and I'm able to really play well, and I'm able to play my best. The external good of chess would be, I play so good that I'm able to win some money, or I play so good that it makes me famous, or I play so well that uh, it impresses somebody and then they offer me a job teaching chess, right? So the internal goods of a practice are one thing, and the external goods of a practice are something else. Now what Seligman found is that lots of people spend a lot of time chasing external goods. For instance, trying to make as much money as possible. And the fact is, of course, we need money. Why? Well, we've got bodies, and if we want to continue living, we need some food, right? And we could just live on a farm and all grow our own food, but most of us, for obvious reasons, since we don't know how to farm, need money to get food, to get clothes, to get shelter, to get everything we need. So this is not knocking money, like, oh, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about money ever. We need to worry about money or at least some of us do, right? I've got a bunch of children. I can't be like, hey kids, you know, happiness is not about money. So just, you know, no food today, 
You guys want some, you need new shoes? Tough luck, yeah, just walk. You know, you don't need shoes really, do you? Well, yeah, we don't have any place to live anymore either. There's a nice place under the bridge I found for us though. So we just, we'll camp there. Well, yeah, I mean, of course we need money. But what happens sometimes is people think that money is going to be the solution, that having more money is gonna solve everything. But they've studied this a lot. And basically what they found is this, that once you make enough money to cover your basic needs, right? So you have food, three meals a day, right? You've got a warm place to sleep at night. You've got clothes that keep you sufficiently warm and protected from the elements. That basically more money really doesn't make any difference for happiness once you meet this basic kind of threshold. So if you're below that, well, more money makes you a lot more happy, right? If you're starving to death, right? And I give you enough money for food, that's gonna really boost your happiness. But once you're basically, you know, the average American, right? Who eats three meals a day and has a place to live and, you know, has, you know, clothes to keep them warm and such, more money really doesn't make that much difference in terms of happiness. So Seligman's conception of happiness, you can think of it as an acronym. Uh, and the acronym, acronym is PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. Positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning, achievement, PERMA. Okay, so again, I'm not trying to force a definition of happiness on you, but let's take that just for the sake of argument, for the sake of uh, thinking about it, as a definition of happiness we could think of. Now, how does that relate to Christianity? Well, what the researchers found in terms of happiness boosting activities might surprise you. Here are some of the things they found. They did a study where they divided college students into two groups. And the one group, they said, we want you to do something really fun and enjoyable. So we want you to go to the movies and go eat some ice cream, right? And another group of students, they say, we want you to do something that really serves other people, that really helps people. So you can volunteer to help uh, teach kids how to read in a local grade school. You can go visit an old folks home and talk to the elderly residents there and try to be nice to them and try to make them feel less lonely, right? So do something that's a real volunteer activity. And then you guys, I want you to do something that's, you know, go to the movies, have some ice cream, have a big Slurpee, it'd be great. And what happened? Well, students came back and they reported their experiences. The people that went to the movies and had ice cream said, that was great. I really enjoyed that. And then once I was, the movie was over, and once I'd eaten ice cream, it was pretty much done. And that was the end of it. The people that vo were volunteers, the people that helped others, said that was great. And the happiness that they experienced actually was much, much more long-lasting than the happiness from the people that went to the movie and had the ice cream. So what they found was that people who uh, serve others have this boost of happiness. Now, in the Christian tradition, have you ever heard of uh, serving others as sort of part of Christianity? Is that ring a bell for anybody? I mean, isn't that really a key part of living a Christian life? Wasn't this something that Jesus asked all of his followers to do, right? To help other people. He put it in a very dramatic way, right? To feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to welcome the stranger. And you might think of those as overarching uh, ways of helping other people to have a better life. So he didn't talk about doing the dishes for your people you live with or calling your lonely grandma, but all those really do kind of fall under the category of serving and helping others. So part of being a faithful Christian is trying at least to serve other people and help them. 
And so if the research that Seligman has done is correct, what we'd expect to find is people of faith having higher levels of happiness. And that's exactly what we do find. Every single study that's ever been done about religious practice indicates that people who practice their faith, on average, are happier than people that don't. And notice what I said. I said practice their faith. It's not simply about, oh, I believe in God or I don't. They actually found almost no difference between those people. People who say they don't believe in God, people who say they believe in God but don't practice, on the one hand, versus people that actually practice religious faith. On the other hand, there's a big, huge difference. So it's not enough simply to say, oh, theoretically, I think God exists. What's needed is actual engagement of some kind. Here's another thing that the positive psychologist found, and this is something you can do tonight if you want to try to increase your own happiness. It's called the three good things exercise. It is super easy. At the end of today, before you go to sleep, you can just write down on your phone or a piece of paper or something, and just think about your day. And think about any three things that you're grateful for today. And it could be, again, a huge thing. I got into the graduate school I wanted to, and now I've got a full ride to go to you know, Harvard Law School or whatever. Okay, great. But normally for most people, right, they don't have an enormous thing happening, but it could be a small thing, right, that they put out as snacks, uh, little treats that I really like. Those little cookies with the, you know, the pink ones, those are really very tasty. So they brought the nice tasty pink cookies. So that could be a good thing. It could be that you had a really good conversation with someone, that you met someone new and you started talking to them and you really enjoyed the conversation. They seemed like a great person and you got to, you know, meet them and talk to them. That was great. It could be that you read something really interesting. Maybe you picked up a new book. Uh, I just did. It's called How to Read a Book. <laughs> it's by Mortimer Adler. And if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. it. came out in 1940, still in print. Any book that's still in print after that long has probably got something important to say. So I got to read How to Read a Book. So it doesn't have to be big, but you list three things that you're grateful for. Now, if you're a person of faith, any good thing that you have in your life ultimately is a result of the first cause. And that would include the nice pink cookies. That would include the nice person you met and got to talk to. That would include the nice book that you got to read. That would include that we are living in a peaceful country, right? We're not in uh, the Ukraine. We do not have Russian troops driving tanks down our streets and shooting at us. We can think about the blessings of things that, thank God, we're not going through and not experiencing, right? We all have the gift of life. That's not guaranteed. Just today, I found out that a dear friend of mine who I, was, I went to Notre Dame with died. You know, that was it. So we can be grateful for her life, but I'm also grateful that I'm still alive. I'm still, still kicking. So we all can find things that we're grateful for. Now, do we all have things that we're not grateful for? Yes, of course we do. I don't know all of you, but if I talk to you, I'm sure each one of you has a cross. And many of you have heavy crosses that are very difficult. That's true. That's true. And that's part of human life. And some people think, well, that means I'm getting punished by God because God must not really love me. I must be a bad person. I've got this cross and it's very heavy. Well, that's not true. Think about both Jesus and Mary. According to Catholic tradition, both of them are without sin. And yet, isn't it true that both Jesus and Mary suffered quite grievously? So when we suffer, sometimes it is our own fault. If I get really drunk tonight and have a terrible hangover tomorrow, that's on me, right? That is my fault. But a lot of times when we suffer, it's not our fault. 
maybe somebody else's fault if someone does something mean to us, and maybe just bad circumstances. In any case, gratitude is a key for happiness. And gratitude is part of the Christian life. It is bread and butter of the Christian life. Think about the Eucharist. As you may know, the Eucharist, that word, is just the Greek term for thanksgiving. They found in the United States that there's one day in which the rate of suicide goes to its very lowest, and that's Thanksgiving Day. On Thanksgiving Day in the United States, suicide rates are the lowest of the entire year. Now, why is that? Well, I, I think it's because on Thanksgiving Day, more than any other day, people in the United States are grateful and they're thankful. And they don't think about, oh, I don't have this and I don't have that. They look at their life, which is a mix of good and bad, but they look at their life and they say, you know what? I have good things in my life. My mom loves me. My best friend loves me. I've got enough food. I've got enough clothes. Whatever we have on Thanksgiving Day, especially, we're grateful for. But we as Catholics are really lucky. We don't need to celebrate Thanksgiving Day just once a year in November. We can celebrate the Eucharist. We can celebrate Thanksgiving every Sunday. We can celebrate the Eucharist even more frequently if we want. Every single Mass is a chance to offer thanks to God for whatever blessings are in your life. And think about the very last words of every Mass are what? Thanks be to God. Those are the last words we say as we walk out of Mass. Those are the words that the church wants to echo in our mind. Thanks be to God. Aquinas had this very challenging teaching. He thought we should even be grateful for the difficulties in our life. And that's a very challenging teaching, to be grateful even for the things in your life that cause you difficulty and suffering. And the reason he thought that is he thought that God only allows suffering if somehow in God's wisdom and God's divine providence it actually is beneficial for us. He compared it to bitter medicine. That's an interesting teaching. That's a hard teaching, but it's very interesting. And what if we had that? What if we were grateful even for our imperfections, even for the difficulties we have? Well, Aquinas thinks if we trusted God, we could find gratitude even in those things. In fact, we could, we could somehow embody the recommendation of Scripture to be grateful in all things. That would be pretty amazing. So we have service to others. We have gratitude. Again, the secular psychologists. These are not Catholics that are cooking all this stuff up. This is secular people. Martin Seligman is an agnostic Jew, as far as I know, last I heard, unless he's converted since then. So he's not, he's not a Catholic. He's not a Christian. He's not a, even a theist. He's cooking up all these results to confirm his own bias or something. It's not true. A third thing they found is an absolute key to happiness is forgiveness. Absolutely key. And the reason is that love is so central for happiness. And the fact is, if love is so central for happiness, we need forgiveness. So let's say Sarah and I are friends. And so we have a good relationship, very friendly, very nice. But sooner or later, I'm going to do something that really irritates her, something that really gets on her nerves and offends her and whatever. Or maybe she might do that to me. Now, if we don't have forgiveness, what's going to happen is I say, that's it. I'm not talking to her anymore. I'm out of here. Forget it. Delete her from the phone. Never talk to her again. Right? And people do that. And you can do that with your family. Right? At some point, your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, whoever is going to say or do something that offends you, that hurts your feelings. 
And you can't say, that's it. I'm not talking to mom. I'm not talking to dad. I'm not talking to brother. I'm not talking to sister. Now, we can do that. But if we do that, what's going to happen is, in terms of our life, we're going to have no long-term loving relationships. Because given that your relationship is going to be with an imperfect human being, of course they're going to say or do something that hurts your feelings or offends you or whatever. Right? And vice versa. So forgiveness, according to the positive psychologist, is absolutely key for happiness. And what forgiveness is, is not pretending that nothing wrong was done. If something, if someone does something mean to you, if someone really offends you and does something terrible, well, that's, that's wrong. That's bad. Forgiveness is not pretending, oh, there's no problem here. There is a problem here. But what forgiveness is, is not pursuing vengeance against this person for the bad thing they did. That you're not going to take charge of punishing this person for the bad thing that they did. You're going to let that go. You're going to maybe say, God is all-knowing. God is all-just. And God is going to take care of this. I don't personally need to have vengeance because of this bad thing the person did. Unforgiveness, you might say, is a little bit like this. It's a little bit, if I have unforgiveness, I'm, I'm getting ready to take revenge, let's say, on you for whatever bad thing you did to me. And I'm carrying around, around a bunch of burning hot coals. And I'm just waiting for the opportunity to walk up to you and throw these burning hot coals in your face and really, you know, really uh, strike back at you, you might say. But the problem, of course, is if you're carrying around a bunch of burning hot coals, uh, you're burning yourself the whole time. You're the one who's getting burned, right? So unforgiveness, and again, they've studied this scientifically, is bad for you even in terms of your physical health. You're more likely to have heart problems. You're more likely to have all kinds of health, other health problems. And the reason is that when you're filled with unforgiveness, what you, what you're in terms of physiology, you're in a constant fight or flight physiology. Right? You think about the person that offended you, you think about how much you know, how angry you are at him, and you're, you're filled with this sort of tension and this sort of stress vis-a-vis -vis this person. But forgiveness is letting go of those burning hot coals and saying, you know what? I don't need to take vengeance on this person. Now, again, if someone does something terrible to you, maybe you cannot restore the relationship to what it was before. Right? Maybe you have to say, well, given every time I see them, they scream and yell at me and try to kill me, I'm going to get some distance. Okay, that's fine. You can forgive someone and still have some distance from them. Hopefully you can reconcile and we're back to the way we were and everything's cool. Sometimes it can't because they're crazy and whatever. Okay, fair enough. That can happen. But you can forgive someone who's crazy, right? You can forgive someone who's mean. And for Christians, this is not an optional matter. Jesus did not say, forgive people if you feel like it, right? Forgive people if, if, it, if you want to, right? He said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's right there in the heart of the Our Father. And Jesus did not just talk about forgiveness. Jesus embodied forgiveness. As he was dying on the cross, one of the last things he ever said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So to forgive people as they're in the midst of killing you, well, that is an unbelievably outstanding example of forgiveness. So the, all this is from, again, the secular positive psychology folks. They found all this. Now, if you're Christian, you actually have even more grounds, you might say, for happiness. Because positive psychology is not enough. For instance, 
everyone who is a conscious agent is aware that sometimes they fail to live out their ideals. So all of us, to a greater or lesser degree, have guilt. All of us, to a greater or lesser degree, have shame. And positive psychology has resources for dealing with feelings of guilt or feelings of shame. But what the problem is, is not the feelings of guilt or shame. The problem is actually the guilt or actually the shame. So it'd be a little bit like if you had a, a terrible cavity, right? And your tooth is rotting and you're like, well, we can get rid of the, the feelings you're having in this cavity by just shooting your job with Novocaine and then you don't feel it anymore. Well, okay, that's fine, but you still have the, the rotten cavity, right? So we can still have the guilt, we can still have the shame, even if our feelings are somewhat assuaged by various psychological techniques. But Christianity, as you know, has an answer to both guilt and shame. It is the forgiveness and the mercy of God, that God loves us even while we're sinners, that God did not come just for the perfect, that God came for people that are imperfect, for people like you and people like me. That is definitely good news. Christianity also moves beyond positive psychology in that positive psychology limits itself to what is empirically verifiable. But the fact is, the human mind is geared to know much more than just what's empirically verifiable. We want to know the truth and not just the truth about what's empirically verifiable. The human will wants to have the good and not just the imperfect goods that we can experience here. And most of all, the human heart wants love. And as good as loving human relationships are, those relationships are always imperfect. So if we want perfect truth, perfect goodness, and perfect love, we can find the embodiment of that in a person. If Jesus is really God, then he is himself the way, the truth, and the life. He is himself perfect goodness, perfect truth, and perfect love. And that's what Christianity is about, is having this relationship with God himself in Christ. And relationship might even be the wrong word, because the idea of Christianity is not simply that you relate to God or relate to Jesus the way you relate to your, your brother or your mother or your sister as an outside person, but rather that the life of God is something that you have in yourself. A kind of analogy that might help you imagine it is something like this. If you have a sword and you put the sword in a burning hot furnace, the sword will actually take in the heat from the furnace and the heat from the furnace will actually be in the red hot sword. And that is akin in a way to the life of God that's possible for us to enjoy, that God's life is enlivening us, that God is in us and we're in God. So Christianity gives us the opportunity for this kind of relationship with God and positive psychology doesn't do that and doesn't claim to do that. Positive psychology is very much neutral with respect to God. It doesn't deny God's existence, but it also doesn't affirm it. And it certainly doesn't give us any avenues for coming into contact with God and experiencing God. But that's, it. that's exactly what the church does offer us, right? What are the sacraments other than visible signs of the invisible reality of God's love? That's true of all the sacraments. It's true also of the word of God that is proclaimed in church and that we can study on our own. It's true that we find God also in other people in the church, that we're all part of the body of Christ. And so we do find a reflection, as it were, a participation of God in other people. So God is all around us. And you might say, well, I don't see God all around me. And that's a fair point. 
there are people, the, the men that were walking on the road to Emmaus, right? They were, in fact, with Jesus, but they didn't recognize him at first. The, after his resurrection, he appeared to the women who thought he was a gardener. They didn't recognize him at first. And so part of the Christian life is becoming able to recognize the reality. And this is true not only of theological matters, this is true of many other matters, right? I'm sure you've all had the experience of only later recognizing the providential hand of God in your life. That at a time I thought this or that didn't really matter, but it turned out this was crucial. At the time I thought taking this course with this professor, you know, it's just one more course, but all of a sudden now this course shapes my whole life. So we can learn to begin to recognize God in our lives. So I've talked about the, the secular vision of positive psychology. I've indicated how Christianity helps realize this vision, but also transcend this vision. And so you might have a question. And the question is this. If everything you said is true, well, how does it explain grumpy old George, who I know, who is Catholic? And he's super grumpy. He has a big frown on his face at all times. He seems the opposite of happy. Right? Have you guys ever seen an unhappy person of faith? Anybody? Yeah. So if everything I said is true, uh, how do you explain that? Well, I think it is true that there are some people of faith that are unhappy. And I do think that there are uh, good reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is this, that the positive psychology folks, uh, they found that part of happiness is genetic. And what I mean by that is this. The inclination to positive emotion is not equally shared by all human beings. So it would be a little bit like athletic ability, right? There are some people that are pretty much born and they are great athletes, right? They can run fast, they've got great endurance, they're really strong, and they're just terrific. And then there are other people that are born that are clumsy and really not coordinated, don't have a lot of stamina, right? There are some people that are born and they have terrific health. Right? They never get colds. They're just really sturdy, great constitution. And there are other people that are quite sickly, just from birth, just from genetics. And so what the positive psychology folks found is that the disposition to positive emotion, if we think about that part of happiness, is not equal among all human beings. Some people are melancholic. Some people kind of have a depressive personality. And other people don't. So you could have a person of faith who, just because of their genetics, has, uh, you might say, uh, not a head start in terms of the pursuit of happiness. And that's not their fault. They would be much more unhappy if they didn't practice their faith. Moreover, part of our happiness, if Aristotle's right, has to do with our bodily well-being. Socrates and Aristotle, as you know, disagreed, right? Socrates thought a good person couldn't be harmed. But Aristotle thought, well, no, if you tortured a good person, they are getting harmed. And so our bodies, at least if Aristotle's right, make a difference for happiness. If I'm very sick, I'm going to be unhappy, less happy than I would be if I weren't. If I get run over by a car, I'm going to be more unhappy than if I'm not run over by a car. So you do have people that have physical problems or psychological problems that inhibit their happiness. And being a person of faith does not make you immune from physical problems, right? You can still get run over by a car. And being a person of faith also doesn't make you immune from psychological problems. You could still be depressed. You could still be anxious. Now, it is true. The research indicates that people who practice their faith have fewer 
psychological problems than people that don't. In fact, there was a study that the Los Angeles Times talked about, and it indicated that there was one group of people in this huge study, it was like 5,000 people study, there's one group of people who had zero cases of suicide in the entire group. It's this big, huge group. And that was um, women who went to church more than once a week. This big, huge study, they had zero, literally zero cases of suicide. So practicing a faith is associated with reduction of anxiety, reduction of depression, et cetera. But still, just as your physical health can go on the fritz if you're a person of faith, so too, your psychological health can go on the fritz despite being a person of faith. Another thing that can explain this is the fact that Christians, like everybody else, have free will, and Christians, like everybody else, can misuse their free will. And so a person of faith can know the right thing to do, and yet not, in fact, do those things. They could be like a person who gets medications from the doctor, and the doctor says, take this medication for your asthma, take this medication for your high blood pressure, etc." And they wake up in the morning and they look you know, behind the medicine cabinet and they don't take any of the medication. Well, if they don't take the medication, they're not going to get the benefit of it. So you might say Jesus, the physician, encourages us to do things like serving our neighbor, encourages us to do things like avoid sin for our own well-being, for our own happiness. And sin is a way of undermining that. So think about the sin of greed, right? Why is that a uh, capital vice. Well, it's a capital vice because if I set my heart on money, if I make money the ultimate goal of my life and do everything just for the sake of money, I am going to neglect loving properly my own family. I'll be like, hey kids, I can't help you with anything because I'm too busy working. Hey kids, yeah, we can't go on vacation because I'm just, I'm just going to be working the whole time. And I'll miss their whole growing up. I'll miss their whole lives because I'm just working you know, uh, 100 hours a week, and I'm just never around, and I can do that. But if I love money that much and work those many hours, I just am going to neglect properly loving my wife and my kids. And that is going to harm me, because I'm not going to be the loving, good kind of father and husband that I want to be. I'm going to undermine my own well-being by doing that. Similarly with anger, right? Anger, uh, another uh, deadly sin. Now, what is anger? Anger doesn't mean uh, there is a kind of just anger, and that's fine. If someone breaks into your house, you shouldn't be like milk toast and be like, "Oh, it's cool. You're in a, you know, you're you're in a rape, you know, and pillage and kill people in my house. Oh, fine, I'm I'm okay with that." Well, no, I mean you should be super angry, and if you know martial arts, you should you know cross collar choke them and do whatever you need to do, and yeah, they should, and that's perfectly fine. There would be a deficiency in you if you were not properly angry, but for a lot of people they can go to the opposite extreme, right? Getting too angry. And again, you can see for obvious reasons how if I have an anger problem and I can just go ballistic all the time, that's going to damage the relationships that I have in my life, right? It's going to harm my relationship with my wife and my kids. They're like, oh my gosh, dad is so, he blows his top all the time and I can't even talk to him about things because he just yells and screams all the time. And that's going to undermine our good relationship. So, the idea of, say, the seven deadly sins is these are seven ways, you might say, of undermining love. And if happiness is love full stop, it undermines happiness. And so one reason some Christians are less happy than they could be is even though they may theoretically know that they should love God and neighbor, unfortunately, in fact, they sometimes don't do that. They don't take the medication, you might say. They don't follow the practices that Jesus recommends. 
And I think for a lot of people, um, Aquinas thought that there were three causes of sin. Uh, one of them was ignorance, right? Sometimes people do the wrong thing and they just don't know what they're doing. Fair enough. Another cause of sin, he thought, was malice. You do the wrong thing and you're just like, I'm going to do the wrong thing. I don't care. I'm doing it and get out of my way, right? But I'm guessing for, for you people here, I'm guessing that when you do things that are wrong, it's not just ignorance. Like, oh, I had no idea that was wrong. And I'm guessing for most of you here, it's not malice either. That you're like, I don't care at all about God. I don't care about other people. I'm just doing this. But I think rather it's the third cause of sin that Aquinas talked about, weakness of will. So let me conclude my remarks here by talking a little bit about weakness of will. What is that? Well, weakness of will is where you uh, know the right thing to do, but then you end up not doing it. And weakness of will is something that positive psychology has also studied. And they've, they've found some uh, ways to strengthen willpower. So I want to conclude by throwing out some of the things they found. And this might be helpful to you, that maybe you struggle sometimes with weakness of will and you know the right thing to do. And then, oh my gosh, now I'm not doing the right thing. That could happen to you. It certainly happens to me. How can you strengthen your willpower? Well, they found a number of things. One of the things they found is that willpower is weakened if we don't get enough sleep, right? So if you're up, if you're up till 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning, uh, your willpower is, is weakening, right? Your willpower is weakening. If you get enough sleep, it's going to be stronger. Another thing they found is that if you go to In-N-Out and all you eat is double-doubles, right? You've got a terrible diet. You don't eat healthy food. That also weakens willpower, right? Another thing they found is drugs and alcohol, no surprise, weaken willpower. So if you want to strengthen your willpower, one thing you could do is either lessen or eliminate drugs and alcohol from your life. You could make sure or try to make sure that you get enough sleep, and you could try to make sure to eat healthy food. Another thing they found was willpower was greatly strengthened through exercise. So the next time you're in a willpower challenge, one thing you could do is get up and walk around the block. Look at some green trees, smell whatever is to be smelled outside, get the legs moving, get a little exercise. That can greatly strengthen willpower. Now, part of the willpower challenge sometimes is what you might call the white bear. So let me, let's do a little experiment. What I want you to do right now is everybody, I want you to think of anything you want to think about, but please, nobody think about a white bear. Okay? No white bears. Don't think about white bears. Okay? Go ahead. Oh, you look like you're thinking about a white bear right now. All right? <laughs> well, if I tell you not to think about white bears, what do you think about? White bears. I'm sure none of you were thinking about white bears until I started talking about this, right? So a temptation can be a little bit like a white bear, right? Like, oh, I'm tempted to do this. And the white bear shows up. Now, what do you do if a bear shows up in your campground? Well, what they say is there are two things you want to not do. One thing you don't want to do is go out and fight the bear. So you don't walk out there and get into a fist fight with the bear because the bear is going to club you, right? And another thing you don't want to do is feed the bear, right? So what happens if you feed the bear? Well, if you feed the bear, the bear eats the food, and then the bear comes back the next day with the bear mom and the bear sister and the bear brother, and now you've got five bears there. And then if you feed the bear again, now you've got the cousin bear showing up, and you got... You know, everybody, you got a, you know, a tribe of bears there all of a sudden, right? 
So with temptations, you don't want to fight temptations and say, I'm not going to think about white bears. I'm not going to think about white bears. I'm not going to, because if you do that, it's called the ironic rebound effect. You're going to think about white bears. On the other hand, you definitely don't want to feed the white bears. Giving into temptation seems to make the temptation go away for a little while, but then the temptation comes back with all the friends and, and so it makes the situation worse. So what do you do if a bear shows up in your campground? Well, what they recommend is you ignore it. You say, yep, there's a bear out there, so I'm not gonna go out there and fight it. I'm also not gonna feed it. And if you ignore the white bear, stay in your cabin, don't go out there. What happens is the bear sniffs around and he looks for stuff and then the bear doesn't find anything fun and the bear wanders off. And that's the nature of the human mind. The human mind of its nature can't stay focused just on one thing forever. It really can't. You may probably have this experience when you try to study. You're like, I've got a big test tomorrow and I'm gonna study. It's gonna be physics, I'm studying. Force equals mass, that's acceleration. Force equals mass, and you're studying, studying, studying. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, what's happening this weekend? I don't know. And I could call so-and-so and you start surfing. And what's on Twitter right now? And well, no, back to physics. Yeah, force equals, I mean, the fact is, even if we wanna focus on one thing, or with prayer, this may happen too, right? You go to Eucharistic adoration, you're like, Jesus, I'm here for you. I love you, Lord. I, well, Notre Dame football. Yeah, all of a sudden you're off, right? You're wandering away. But so that's not good when you're trying to focus on study or focus on prayer, the natural inclination of the mind to wander off. But that inclination helps you in terms of temptation because if something, some temptation comes in your mind, you can be 100% certain and confident. It's not gonna stay there forever. It just won't because you're a human being and you've got a human mind and your mind can't, even if you try to, just focus on one thing forever. It just, it's not the nature of the human mind to do that. So I think some Christians are less happy than they otherwise would be because of weakness of will. And so that's why I think that these remedies that the positive psychology folks have, have investigated and, and studied might be useful for you to improve. Now, the fact is we're never going to be perfect in this life, right? Even great saints at the end of their lives don't say, I am perfect now. I'm exactly everything God wanted me to be. But we can move towards becoming better. That's what the season of Lent that we just completed is, was all about, right? Lent has to do with growth, right? And we can all grow, right? We can get better. We can be more grateful. We can be more forgiving. We can be of greater service to others. We can get enough sleep. We can eat better food. We can do all these things and hopefully cooperate with God's grace and grow until one day we've grown so much that God calls us home to perfect happiness, to heavenly happiness. And we'll only find it in heaven because until we're in heaven, we're not gonna be perfect. And until we're in heaven, we're not going to love God perfectly. We're not going to love other people perfectly. And frankly, we're not even going to love ourselves perfectly. And so we have that great goal to strive towards. And we have that great hope that one day we really will find perfect happiness. But until then, we can move a little bit closer in terms of being happier than we are now. So thank you.